Episode 54 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today, we're talking about the importance of sleep for law enforcement officers. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey there, welcome to Tactical Breakdown. This is episode 54. So excited to be back with you today. Really excited about my guest. Really excited about all the stuff we're going to talk about because it is so important for every officer doesn't matter if you're in law enforcement, if you're in corrections, if you're in any type of criminal justice field, or as a first responder in general. This stuff is very, very important. And of course, my guest today is Dr. Charles Samuels. Now, Dr. Samuels is a board-certified sleep physician with a primary research interest focused on understanding the prevalence of effects of sleep disturbances in specialized populations. He works intimately with the RCMP up here in Canada, and in fact, his program is implemented across the country for RCMP officers. I'm going to have his bio in the show notes below because it is almost too extensive to list here. Uh, Just know that Dr. Samuels knows his stuff. He's one of the best in the world, and I'm honored to have him on the show. And one of the reasons why I... For those of you who are curious, the reason why Dr. Samuels and I got connected is because I had the pleasure of interviewing him for his session for the upcoming ILFE online conference. ILFE is the International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors, and they will be hosting their online conference December 1st to 3rd. You can check that out at ILFEonline.com. And you don't have to be a firearms instructor to attend the conference. If you are not a member of ILFE, You can still attend the conference. It is a little bit more, but included in that fee is your membership due. Now, here's the trick. There are a set of requirements to become a member of ILFE. So if you're not an active firearms instructor that's accredited, you can still become a member. You're just an associate member, not a full-fledged active member of the group. So check that out. You can go to ilfeonline.com. You're going to get to hear more from Dr. Charles Samuels and a bunch of other of the world's best law enforcement firearms instructors. It's going to be a blast. I'm really excited to be able to put that out there for you as well. So without any further ado, let's jump right into this episode with Dr. Samuels and uh, get at it. Here we go. Dr. Samuels, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here, sir. Thanks for being here. You bet. My pleasure. Real quickly, before we jump into everything, I just want to give you a quick second to kind of lay out for the listener here, kind of who you are and and what you do and and where you're located, because I think a lot of people will be a little bit surprised. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm the medical director of the Center for Sleep and Human Performance in Calgary. And I have a dual appointment at the University of Calgary in the faculties of medicine and kinesiology. And my research areas have been in shift work, 
law enforcement, health and wellness and performance, actually. Uh, most of my research work and clinical work has been with the Calgary Police Service and the RCMP. A little bit of work with the Toronto Police Service in 2009 for a year. Um, and then my other area of research, um, which is ongoing now, we do all of the sleep screening and human performance research with respect to sleep for the Olympic teams. So we're funded by Own the Podium to uh, screen all of the Olympic athletes, both able-bodied and Paralympic, um, for sleep disturbance and how it relates to their recovery and performance as athletes. So those are our two areas of research. Clinically, we're the only clinic sleep medicine facility in Canada that specializes in seeing law enforcement officers in the military. So we see them most often for shift work related sleep disturbance and fatigue that's affecting performance and health and wellness. Um, and I also have basically a pipeline from the operational stress injury clinic, which most people on this podcast will understand is the clinic that many um, law enforcement officers, members of the RCMP and the military are sent to with PTSD for comprehensive treatment. I deal with the sleep part of that, which is pretty significant in a PTSD population. So that's sort of a summary of who I am. Yeah. And for everybody listening to this, you'll know exactly, they know me, so they know why I'm so excited to have you on the show right in my wheelhouse. And the biggest thing that jumped out to me when you were going through all of that was the fact that you work so intimately with Olympic and high-performance athletes. There has been talk we've, for everybody who listens to the podcast, who attended the ILET Summit, they know how much we harp on, why aren't we doing the most advanced training that we possibly could when there's Olympic athletes, professional sports that have dumped billions of dollars into research and training on how to optimize human performance. Yet when it comes to law enforcement training, we're stuck back in the 80s. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be so hard on yourselves. <laughs> I've been at this since the mid-1990s, working with the best people in the world. Brian Vila would be considered the granddaddy of addressing fatigue and sleep issues in law enforcement in the world. And he's um, now retired professor emeritus at uh, Washington State University in Spokane. But he, they have a whole team and they have a human performance lab where they actually do deadly force simulations, sleep deprivation studies, and driving simulations and it's a fully it's a it's quite a facility and they do inform uh, for science um, the united states department of justice and all of the training facilities for law enforcement in the united states in the area so i think while you know on the ground in the trenches members and officers aren't getting this so I would agree with you there. And part of what we're doing today is to let them know there's help. And for instance, in the clinic, we see people virtually. So I'll see it. I'm happy to see someone from Quebec or Ontario or whatever, because law enforcement officers need to know that they know they're struggling. They need to know they can get help. And this idea that... Um, you know, the officers are macho and not willing to disclose. Those days, in my view, are, are gone. Uh, a lot of officers understand that the fatigue affects their performance. And so I think the word's getting out. I don't think we're too far behind. And keep in mind, I've been working in, you know, at a very high level in sport for 15 years now. And, and I don't, 
think they're that much ahead of law enforcement, to be quite honest with you. And I do a lot of work. I, I work for Red Bull, you know, so I, I think law enforcement is it, it's a cultural shift in a big institution and it takes time for it to bleed out to the trenches. But that's what we're doing here today. Yeah, I love that. It's so interesting because when we first got connected, it was due to the fact that you're going to be a speaker on the upcoming ILFE online conference, which I'm honored that I have the ability to help them run with the ILET network and actually put their conference online. But you're going to be coming in and speaking to firearms instructors from around the world and talking specifically about sleep. So can we, let's start there. Can you break down what it is that you're going to be talking about and why it's relevant to law enforcement right now? For sure. Actually, I'll sort of start at the be in the beginning. Um, as we had t- discussed earlier, ILFE found out about us through the International Association of Chiefs of Police meeting two years ago when my partner with the RCMP from Division F in Saskatchewan and I went down and presented our baseline research and then deployment of a online fatigue management strategy for members of the RCMP um, as a pilot uh, project to the medical stream at uh, IACP. And then we were contacted by ILFE, uh, Mark Fettinger. Uh, They asked us to put the course on. So we actually were originally to do an eight-hour course, a full day, which would have been the actual whole course. Um, it's five modules. Um, each module is, uh, you know, two hours or so, one hour to two hours. And um, so now it's, of course, been condensed because of the online format to a one to two hour session as an introduction to what we've done with the RCMP, how we've done it, and how agencies could implement it on different platforms. Because, of course, in the United States, there are, there are thousands of police services in the United States, whereas in Canada, it's quite, you know, it's smaller in terms of the number of departments across the country. So we're... Um, basically going to, um, I am going to outline the course, demonstrate the modules, but not really go into the depth of training anyone. So where, where's the starting point for an officer when we're, we're sitting there, uh, whether it's an instructor, whether it's the patrol officer or whether it's command staff, that's learning about this at a higher level. What, what is that core component that, I mean, what's the one thing? I know it's not going to be one thing, no. but what is, the, what is the core component that you want them to take away from the training? Well, I think there's two things, if I may be so bold, Adam, is because this is a good podcast to, to explain it in its largest format, sort of the 40,000 foot and then come down to the ground. Because when I started... And this would have been, you know, again, sort of early 90s. It was at a request from a, 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 a duty inspector with the Calgary Police Service to address the issue of 12-hour shifts. Are they dangerous or not? And this exploded into the concern over fatigue. And then it exploded when I got to the chief's table into a discussion about the impact of shift work on officers' health and their wellness. So why do officers retire and then two years later die from a heart attack? That was sort of the question. And of course, this is very meaningful to officers. They they have friends where this has happened. They all wonder about like, what's the deal with shift work? You know, does it, does it really make me sick? So we set about answering that question. So I think at the beginning, 
from an organizational perspective, it's about training your senior staff and your your um, administrative staff on the importance of understanding the impact of shift work on human health and performance in law enforcement because it is a safety sensitive occupation. So, getting the senior staff to understand this is why you know you might be dealing with disability issues, with behavioral issues, um, with you know excessive use of force issues. What's the relationship here? And we can explain all of that. Okay, um, and of course that's a topical issue in North America right now. Right, um, we talk about how mental function and behavior degrade over time as a consequence of just shift work, which is an embedded part of an officer's job. So you can't take away the shift work, but what you can do is teach people how to do it better, how to cope better with it, and always educating. My number one point from an administrative point of view is you will never find the perfect shift. There is no such thing. And this is always what the question is. What's the best shift? And we try to divert senior staff away from that and administrative people away from finding the best shift. It's about, you know, staffing to workload, You looking at different strategies, depending on what divisions people are in and what work, you know, detectives are different than patrol officers. Special teams are different from patrol officers. We have to remember all of those intricacies and then developing strategies within each group. Traffic is different from general duty, let's say. All of these different things to address each one and go, okay, what's the best strategy here for most people? It won't be ideal ever for everyone. That's not a goal. And once you educate the senior staff about that and they go, oh, okay, well, this is, this is a problem, but we can manage it because they don't manage it now because they don't think it's manageable. And that's what's the education not getting out is there are solutions. I work with an international group of people um, going out to industry saying, we know you have problems. We know you're frustrated by all the advice you're getting. Here is a malleable solution to fit into your organization. And then you go down to on the individual level, which is our program. So out of all of that comes this training program, which is only one piece of the bigger part of managing it. What does an officer do? So in that, there's a five module program that addresses the five main topics that are relevant to the concept or the problem of fatigue because that we've sort of narrowed it down to what's the problem and when so when you survey a large group of officers about their main concerns and complaints sleep fatigue top 5 so the organizations know this and in Calgary we had a psychological services department they did a a, a service wide survey and it was very clear what the problem is so you can't avoid it you have to now address it. So I always ask organizations, see if there's a problem for us. See if this is an issue for your members, for your officers. And if it is, we'll then go from there to help you address it. The training program is only one piece of that big puzzle. What's the easiest way for an agency to get that feedback? Is it just like a survey they send out to their officers? Do they bring in a, a consulting company to come in and conduct those interviews? Like, what is the most efficient way that you've seen it done? It's interesting because at IACP, I, I actually was shocked at the amount of wellness or effort that's going into wellness programs within law enforcement agencies is quite substantial. And they all do it differently. 
And it depends on what the organization wants. I've been fortunate with Calgary Police Service and RCMP to be working with their health groups. So embedded in the organization, Calgary Police Service has the psychological services unit and they have a family practice within the service. So I work closely with those people. And then on the RCMP side, I'm working with Lifestyle and Fitness Division, which is a nationwide division in all of the divisions, and then the Occupational Health part, de- Department too for the RCMP. So so it's easier to get these kinds of things done where they basically develop surveys that might be um, ones they've gotten from somewhere else or ones that they develop themselves. I don't think you need consultants to come in and do that kind of screening necessarily. Um, but each agency is different and they do it differently, Adam. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I remember when I was with the Canadian Forces, this was something that would come up with, you know, we'd have these kind of surveys all the time. How are you feeling? Yeah. <laughs> Did they hurt your feelings today? <laughs> no. <laughs> Always answer no. But so I guess my question would be, is what is the rate that these are not answered correctly by the members themselves, whether it's due to outside factors or maybe they don't want to, maybe they feel if they answer something uh, in a certain way, it may negatively affect Factum. their standing. Yeah. Has that been an issue? Oh, big time. So number one rule is it has to be anonymous. So keep in mind the purpose of surveying your population is not to find officers with problems. That's not the purpose. It's to identify on a population basis, what are the common problems? And in this particular area, fatigue and sleep come up always top five. So when officers are reassured, their name isn't on anything. And that's not always reassuring to a police officer because police officers are inherently paranoid. So, you know, which is part of being a police officer. So, um, so they'll come up with, oh, well, they could find it this way and that. But if you make it anonymous, that's step one. And step two is, you know, I've always, because I've always been faced with culture change in law enforcement. I've always been faced, this isn't about sleep in my view. It's not actually, it's about changing a culture getting people aware of what the barriers are to optimal performance, which we would do with athletes, and then saying, how will we address it? So it's it's more about how do I break through the culture? And when you do that, my line has always been, this is about officer health and wellness. This is about anything else. This isn't about making you work more hours. This is about saying you can't make extra money because that's a huge issue, pay duties, et cetera. This is about what is the best thing for you as an individual at 45 years of age, 20 years into the service, um, you know, five, 10 more years to go. What's the best thing for you? You know, where should you be and how should you be managing yourself to have the best outcome at the end of your career as a law enforcement officer? That's always been my statement. I genuinely mean that because I see them as patients in a clinic as a doctor. So I care about these guys. Is there a difference when we're talking about sleep and fatigue when it comes to either optimizing performance versus negating cumulative effects post-service? So essentially, is there a difference in the way that we approach this topic where it's how do we optimize your performance on the day-to-day shift to shift Absolutely. Versus how do we 
stop all of this negative accumulation over time, over time that yeah. leads to the, the more significant uh, mental health and physical detriment down the road. Yeah. And so I, ta- I put it into the context of the life cycle of a police officer. So what's the trajectory through their career? Right. So, you know, you, you think about 25 years usually is, you know, to retirement kind of thing. And it depends on the age that they enter in, which varies now greatly, the sex and then their trajectory over their career. And, and that I look at as the number of years in rotating shift work. Because many officers and members will transition out and back in and out and back in. Some will move out of shift work quickly and then into stable days, but do on call. So, so that's what the trajectory of the member's career is. And so short term, that's essentially, well, no, it's, it's the course, the, the training program addresses both components. Short term, day to day, what can you do to have less fatigue, manage your recovery better? And that's kind of what we do every day here. We have, we have three people full time who just, tear apart the shift schedule and the lifestyle and build it back up again into a new way of doing things. Because keep in mind, and you know this, you don't have time when you're working that hard to think about how to change what you do. You're just going. And most often you're going like hell. And if you have two kids, you're really going like hell. And if you have four kids, you're really, really going like hell. So in other words, you don't have time to get this information. So we have people who do that um, with the officers and that's day-to-day management. They'll give them new strategies for managing days off, for managing uh, day sleep after night shift, for managing night sleep after day sleep. Uh, day shift and then for managing transitions the worst being and most officers know this transitions from nights to days so they do all of that that's day-to-day long term that's sort of my job because i'm looking at it from the doctor's perspective going okay this guy's now five years into his career or this woman they're showing signs of ptsd there's clearly four events let's say over the trajectory over those four five years that would anyone would consider triggers for PTSD and they're being treated for depression and they have high blood pressure. I've noticed in my time, let's say I've seen this person for two years monitoring um, that they've gained 20 pounds. So I'm looking at this going, you know, this doesn't look good over the next 10 years. So then that's my job to go, you know, we have to focus on the health risks now because they're being undermined by shift work. In other words, if you have someone gaining weight, which most officers will tell you that's what happens over their career, and they continue to do shift work, shift work is a major barrier to weight control. And it's really important. So young officers don't care because they're fine. They can, you can beat the crap out of them and they're fine. But once they hit, you know, the cutoff really is 40 to 45. That's the window of time. Most officers will tell you, I noticed I couldn't handle shift work as well. My health wasn't as good. I, I developed diabetes. I developed. So these are things that I deal with. So, cause I want to get these guys that last 10 years of their career as healthy as they can be. You know, it's, it's interesting. And I want to kind of nerd out with you for a second, <laughs> just to dive into it, just cause I have been interested about it. And this kind of came up after my discussion. I had mentioned to you before we hit record on here that I'd done a a few episodes and things with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman 
And one of the things that he brought up a bunch was sleep and the importance right. of sleep. And so I dove into it. I mean, I don't know if it was my psychology background with university or whatever sparked my interest. Um, but I'm interested in when we talk about sleep patterns, because when we talk about uh, shift work, right, that was always something for me that I could never regulate. Um, and right. so there's different types of sleep patterns. And from my very cursory knowledge, um, there's like monophasic, biphasic, polyphasic sleep. Right. Yeah. And then the thing that most people always reference when it comes to sleep is REM sleep or right. or NREM sleep, which is also another portion of that. So can you maybe break down that a little bit yeah. for yeah. everybody so they can understand? I mean, because I'm going to just bastardize the explanation <laughs> of these because I understand no, I the terms. Yeah. I understand what they are, yeah. but I'll, I'll leave it to you to to kind of maybe break it down a bit more. Yeah, so I'm going to explain the basic physiology of sleep in a normal nighttime sleeper, non-shift worker first, okay? So there are three things that people need to understand when it comes to sleep to make sleep an optimal state for recovery, because that's the purpose of sleep, is cognitive and physical recovery. You need Humans need a period of time of total rest to recover on a daily basis. And that should be at night for most people because we are diurnal mammals, okay? And our sleep period is designed to be at night when it is dark, okay? So one is the amount of sleep. So each individual has their own requirement, which isn't what you can get away with, it's what you need. So that's really important because people say, oh, I can get away with six hours a night, but that's not the question. Do you need seven? Well, seven's optimal, but I can get away with six. But that's the point. That's that that hour differential accumulates over time. And there are downstream negative consequences as you become chronically sleep deprived, even by an hour a day. North America, 30% of the North American population is down per week, 10 to 15 hours of sleep just by lifestyle. Commute. If you only put the commute in there, it's killing your sleep. Okay. So it's the amount of sleep, the timing of the sleep. So most humans are neutral sleepers, 11 to seven kind of sleepers, but you'll find many night owls. So for instance, when you said, I just couldn't adapt to shift work, for instance, night owls tend to adapt to shift work better. Okay. And a night owl is someone whose preferred sleep schedule is delayed. So they're preferring bedtime of 1 to 2 a.m., wake up time of 9 to 10 a.m., that kind of thing. And those people adapt well to shift work and on call often. But if their sleep requirement is nine hours a night and they're a night owl, that doesn't work. They don't adapt well to much at all, actually. The ideal person is a short sleeper, someone who actually physiologically does require maybe six to seven hours and is a night owl. Those are optimal people and those are very high performing individuals um, who end up being, you know, jet fighter pilots, end up being police officers, etc., because they tolerate extended periods of wakefulness better. Okay. And that's a physiological fact. Those are the in individual differences. So there's the amount of sleep you need, the timing of it, what's your optimal time, and then there's the quality of your sleep. And my simple example is there are people who can sleep 
but they wake up unrested because something's wrong in their sleep. The typical example is obstructive sleep apnea, where they're snoring and choking in the night. This is very common in police officers. The prevalence of sleep apnea in a law enforcement population is almost six times the normal population. Okay. I have it. That's you're a perfect example, and I wouldn't have said that actually. Just looking at you, um, so and I'm usually doing that. You can only see me chest down. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but so you understand that because that disturbs your sleep, and when you correct it, it uh, it makes the quality of your sleep restorative. So those three things are the key factors. So if you have someone who's normal on those three things, but you change the timing by putting them into shift work you're altering normal physiology. And if we don't adapt appropriately and you just go and do your own thing, which isn't always the right thing, you become cumulatively affected by shift work over time. Basically, sleep debt. So not only circadian dysrhythmia, which is a whole topic on its own and has definite medical health consequences, but just the chronic sleep debt because day sleepers after night shift don't sleep the right amount. And that accumulates over time. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I love doing nights, but the problem would be is that on the transition back, I would usually, and, and I don't know if this was just because of the way it was with the military, but I'm very comfortable in that 48 hour range, 36 to 48 hours, where if I'm coming off a night shift, I'll actually stay awake that entire day and then stay awake or like I'll, I'll stay up awake for like a day and a half, essentially. Bad, before I fall back. Bad, asleep. Bad. I, I, well, I assume it's probably not the best, but, that but was, normal. Okay. That's what people do. Okay. Oh, and I'm that's a sim. No, you're not. No, and that's a simple thing that we try to educate um, officers about. Is you can't you can't take away sleep without a consequence. So the, most people will the with shift work and jet lag, they will drive their sleep by becoming sleep deprived, which in an athlete is a really bad idea. So I have athletes traveling all over the world. We don't want them compromising their sleep just you know, staying up extra days just so they can sleep. No, we get them sleeping and napping strategically. So they keep their sleep debt down. That's the whole goal is keep, give the officers strategies to reduce sleep debt over seven days. So you need 60 hours of sleep a week. We have strategic napping to keep that sleep debt down. So, Two th- one really just anecdote is um, I have four kids under four. Oh God! And so when you were like seven hours, I was like, man, I you know, I don't know what I would do with seven hours of sleep. I'm at like four. Yeah. Um, and that's just been the last like three years of my life. So at some point, I'll probably have to try to make it up. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna have to probably have some offline phone conversation. Sure. Uh, but I also don't want people listening to this to think it like, oh man, my sleep schedules are all screwed up. It's all doom and gloom, or I'm not a night owl. I don't handle not sleeping well. So can we talk about some of those tools that you had mentioned on how we can, and I'm assuming here's the, here's the best part about this. I'm assuming that they're probably very simple things that people can do. They're simple, but any officer would tell you they're difficult to implement for the very reason that they have four children and, you know, 
and they're a shift worker, let's say. So we're very sensitive to their, their individual circumstances. So definitely this is not meant to be doom and gloom by any stretch of the imagination. And the reason I feel comfortable speaking the way I do is officers know, you know, these are smart guys and they know when they're tired and they know what their limits are. They know that they have to push past their limits and they know when they've hit the wall. Like I've seen hundreds and hundreds of police officers. And so, I mean, these guys are smart guys who get it. Um, And it's just the overwhelming sense of obligation to do their duty that puts them in positions that they're probably working longer than they should be, or they're driving when they shouldn't. I have, you know, people from forensics or tactical teams that are sent in my setting from Calgary to Medicine Hat. They do a 40 hour operation and then they hop in a vehicle and drive back having had no sleep over 48 hours. You know, that's dangerous. That's not a safe thing to do, regardless of the amount of coffee you've drank. 48 hours is the limit, you know? And so it's really important to just educate people and then they get a sense of, okay, and then give them the strategy. So, you know, for the one, for the officer that's not a night owl, we have all kinds of ways of managing that. It doesn't mean they can't do shift work. Keep in mind, I'm, I'm, my position is that you never take someone off work unless they can't do their job. You give them the tools to be better at managing it. And this is always um, a shared responsibility between the employee and the employer to make the optimal setting work um, for the workers. And so I don't get involved in in disputes. I mean, I'll tell you, working um, with the Toronto Police Service in 2009, that was tough because, you know, the union or the association and the administration, um, you know, the relationship was was always contentious, not in an, in an ugly way. It's just they had a contentious relationship. In Calgary, it wasn't as contentious. And so it was easier to work with both sides um, because, you know, you have to and you have to respect the union and you have to respect the administration's responsibility to have safe officers out in the street. So I don't think this this is meant to scare anyone or say they're not doing well. It is meant to say, if you don't think you're doing well, you need to know you can get help. And there are people, there are experts who actually know how to work. Family doctors don't have a clue how to manage this stuff. This is way outside the realm of general medicine. Um, the, the average sleep doctor trained doesn't have this experience or skill because it's not something we get trained to do in our general sleep medicine fellowships. So this is an area of expertise um, that is unique. And maybe there's four guys like me in the country who just see these people, right? And so we get to know them well and we get to know how to help them. And I've never seen an officer we couldn't get back to work, you know? Are there some things that you would tell an officer to avoid like, for example, like I'm assuming there's going to be the regular ones, like don't chug a Red Bull five minutes before the end of your shift kind of thing. Uh, but is there anything that you see that's usually fairly common that you're like, oh, I really wish you wouldn't do that? Yeah. So when I started, I would have told you nicotine and alcohol. Really important. And then caffeine, because the lifestyle 20 years ago, if not forever in law enforcement, I mean, in medicine back in the 50s was, you know, you drank to sleep and you drank coffee to stay awake and that's how you lived. 
and then you topped it up with some nicotine and people smoked. So back at the beginning, really, that's all. Now, technology, huge problem. Exposure to technology is a huge problem, especially in law enforcement, because they're on tech all the time now. Very destructive to physiology of sleep, which is why I work with the Red Bull Esports division. Because those kids, these are kids making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year as athletes playing video games, 14 hours a day on screen. That is not good for you. And now are we talking specifically about the, the certain light waves, like the blue light and that causing uh, deficiencies in like melatonin and things like that in your body? So, so there are two things. One is the light and the other is the interaction. So in my mind, interaction is actually more important. So in other words, people are using, like they're living on their devices. They're, they can't extract themselves from, and they can justify that. That's a really tough thing to change because it is like an addiction. It is like something they just need to do. And I work hard to get them to understand that they have to have a separation from the tool. So the interaction is one of the biggest, the light for sure is an important thing. We can get around that. We can have light blocking glasses. There's all kinds of things we can do, screen um, blockers and all that kind of stuff. So, but at the end of the day, it's the interaction with the device, which is devastating actually. Um, Beyond that, I think, the simple things are, you know, really looking at your schedule and how you manage your time and focusing on recovery. Days off are really important. Transitions are important and extra duties are important. You really need to, you know, people, you know, people will work to make more money, but it may not be the best thing for them. And that's really important message to get across. Um, and, and again, I understand that guys need money, like you need to make more money. Um, but there's a very fine balance there in terms of uh, health and performance on the job. Um, that's important. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, you would probably know more about this than I do, but I feel like we're very lucky in up here in Canada. I think overall our officers are rem- remunerated a lot better, better. Than they are in yep. the U.S. So yep. the, the need to say, ah, oh, I got to pick up that overtime shift maybe isn't as great. And I, and obviously this is a generalization. I'm not speaking for individuals. doesn't matter no. where you are, but I really feel like it's a little bit of a difference because when we talk about officers in the U.S., that's very, yeah. very, very common. The amount of overtime. Absolutely. And it makes a big difference. So one of the things that I did want to ask you about was liability on the agency. Now that we understand the science, now that we understand how sleep and fatigue affects the officers, and now that there is a spotlight bigger than ever before, Sean, on use of force incidents with officers and whether it's decision-making or whatever it is, I feel like this is a, a point of conversation in those investigations. Is that something that is going to be coming down the pipe that we can expect is that we're going to start saying, Hey, this officer was awake or on shift for this period of time. They are now not able to make decisions as well as if they would have gone home at the end of their shift instead of working that overtime. Is that, is that something that's a consideration? Yeah. So this is really important. This is a dangerous place to go. Yes. (laughs) In law enforcement and the military because 
the demands of the job do not allow for the luxury of optimal situations with respect to work and rest. That's really important. If I'm working with a surgeon, they have far more flexibility and opportunity to say, I'm too tired. I can't do this. Even in the middle of a surgery, there are other surgeons in a big hospital if it became dangerous, let's say. Okay. So now, and I'm speaking very broadly because many of my surgical colleagues would argue, no, there isn't, but it's a lot different than one officer in a car in his cruiser at two in the morning with no one else around. People do not understand the life of a police officer. They just don't. I'm not making excuses for any behaviors or anything. I'm just saying people just don't understand. So I want to open that conversation by saying that so that there is no question in my last 20 years, I am called as an expert witness to address the very topic you've raised. A variety of situations. Could fatigue have been a factor in this incident? Whatever it is. You know, I've had officers run over by vehicles on the side of the road um, and killed, you know, I mean, all all kinds of different things. Um, So, yes, but it is, to be quite honest, marginal in the bigger picture of things Mm -hmm. when it comes to an incident. So when, when there's an incident, there are so many other factors that are explored that no, it's not common. It's not frontline as a, as a topic to address. It will be brought up if it's believed to be a factor by those involved. Could be the lawyers, could be who, whoever's involved. While I think it's important, I, I think it has, it has to definitely be put into context of the situation. And, you know, we don't know what officers do in their time off. We, we don't know. We don't know if they get sleep because they have two sick children. You know, there, I can give you so many examples of things that have happened where guys haven't slept for days, even when they were off shift because of the stress of home life or something else. So we have to be very careful not to just accuse people and use the math and go, well, you only had 10 hours of sleep this week. Yeah. Well, let's look at why that happened. And could that be more of a a causative factor or not? So I agree with you. It's important, but it must be put into context. Yeah. It seems like it's such an individualized answer, right? It's always like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like that use of force argument. Well, the, the answer is always, it depends. It right? does. And so, cause like, for example, you take myself and my wife, you keep us both up for 24 hours. It, depending on where I am, I could just be functioning as if I just woke up and she is like completely out of it because she does yeah. not handle lack of sleep. Right. And so, and, and you can't, you're not going to know that, right. Unless no. you have extensive research on that individual prior to the incident, yeah, you're not going to know, you're not going to know. So anyway, thank you for, for clarifying that. It was just really interesting. I just had that question as a follow-up to kind of what you had said there. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts from a command level or uh, duty sergeant, FTO, anybody you're there, your officer comes on shift and you know, something's off. Yeah. We had a whole program in the, in Calgary, it would be the district sergeants um, for helping them screen 
because this was their question. So we had a course only for district sergeants that addressed sort of higher level management and exactly that issue. Like, I know this guy's not ready. What should I do? And we would walk them through the steps that they should do. Now, again, I, I, I'm not a police service. I don't know the rules, but I would give them the tools for evaluating the situation so that they could confidently say, you know what? Um, I don't think you're fit to work and here's the, what we're going to do, you know? Um, but you're absolutely right. The senior management needs the skills to manage these things, um, effectively and respectfully for the officer because it's tough. That, yeah, that was the number one thing that kind of jumped out to me was as a commanding officer, I'm responsible for everyone underneath me, regardless of what the situation is. If something goes wrong, yeah, it, it falls on me. Same thing with these police agencies. It's just, it's an interesting conversation because as an individual, I may not recognize that I'm fatigued or yeah. maybe there's exigent circumstances where, like you had said, I need to make rent this month. I need to work overtime. I know that I'm fatigued. I know that I'm exhausted, but I'm going to go to work anyways. At what point do we actually pull that officer aside, whether it's themselves, their partner or their sergeant or whoever, and say, listen, I don't know what's going on, but you definitely shouldn't be going out tonight. And and that's important. What you should know is there's very good research um, to clearly demonstrate that human beings cannot assess their actual level of fatigue. So they definitely put themselves in harm's way routinely. Yeah. I mean, the, the furthest I've seen, um, and this was obviously just in during military training, but when people would get to the point of hallucinating yeah, and it was at that point where they were up until that point, they wouldn't know where they were at until they started hallucinating and be like, Oh man, I'm like, I'm seeing things. Yeah. And then you're like, and then they can kind of self-realize, but that's three, four days in. It's way too far along. Yeah. Way too far. It's really interesting. I love this. I love this conversation. I love <laughs> all of the information. Yeah. For the officer listening to this right now, that's sitting there and is like, I need more information about this. Yeah. Where's a, where's a great resource for them to go? Um, well, they can go to our website. We have a whole section for law enforcement, but there are resources um, on fatigue management through the National Institutes of Health for law enforcement um, and first responders. You'd, you'd basically go shift work National Institutes of Health for a Google search, or they can go to our website and we have resources, uh, resources on there because we sort of summarize all that stuff to make it easy for people to get information. In Canada, we don't actually, this, I'm working with um, uh, an, the, the Canadian Sleep and Circadian Rhythm Network is developing an entire strategy for reaching out to industry in general. So you know, transportation, law enforcement, military, et cetera, to get all of these resources out. Because um, in Canada, we don't have a lot of resources. In the U.S., they do. Most of them are through the National Institutes of Health. Um, IACP has some documents on fatigue management um, that is presented, you know, each year at the conference. And the group that actually does all of the research is um, the um, Washington State University Spokane campus and um, the sleep and human performance lab there. Um, they do the best research in the world on law enforcement fatigue and performance. 
Yeah, absolutely. Those are fantastic resources. And if they're sitting here and they're like, I need more of Dr. Samuels, where's the best place for them to find you? They can refer themselves directly on their own right at the website. They just click on the referral button and say, I'm an officer. And um, we can either do it virtually or we can see them in clinic if they're here or local. That's amazing. Charles, I want to give you a a chance here before we kind of finish off this conversation. Is there anything that you would like to share with officers that are listening to this right now? Yeah. If you have a problem, get help. We will help, you know, I mean, even if it's an email conversation, um, that's what we're here to do. And it worries me that, you know, as COVID hit in Calgary, it really worried me that our frontline medical staff in the emergency room and all of the um, emergency medical services were not asking for help. And it was really tough. And it's going to be tough again in the next few months. It's going to escalate to a point of overwhelming everybody. And it's just like, don't stay at home, get help. And that's what we're here for. So just reach out. People just don't reach out. And it, it quite honestly drives me nuts. But you know, they, they know they need help, but then they just go to work, you know, and I've been there. So I'm, you know, I'm at the tail end of my career. I'm in my sixties, you know, so, uh, but when I was in my thirties and forties, I, I, I ignored the signs of needing help as a rural family doctor. And, um, I, I would wish that people don't do that. Well, and if they want to see more of you as well, they can also join us at the ILFE conference, which will ilfe.online, which is going to be the International Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors Summit that's going to be coming up in December. So you can check that out as well. The links will be in the description. So more detailed. And yeah, and more focused. Way down the rabbit hole. Um, So, and I'm excited personally. I know we're after this, we're going to be doing some collaborations and stuff like that and, and getting you involved with the ILET network and sharing your message and and the knowledge with officers around the world, because it is so, so important. And thank you so much for, for what you do for law enforcement and for everybody. So thank you, man. My pleasure. And I thank the law enforcement officers in our military to be quite frank for what they do. Awesome. Well, we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks for joining us. Take care. All right, that wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to iletsummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at iletsummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.